listening to a sermon from Sojourn Church in Fairfax, Virginia. We hope that this is an encouragement to you no matter where you find yourself on your spiritual journey. If you're not already, we would encourage you to connect to your local church. If you'd like to find out more about Sojourn in particular, please visit our website at sojournfairfax.com. May God bless you now as you listen to the preaching of his word. Um, Today we're going to be reading from the book of Ruth, chapter 4, verses 13 through 22. So if you could take a few seconds to go ahead and find that, uh, that passage, and please stand and follow along as I read aloud. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid, laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. It's good to gather with you today. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn and excited to, uh, to jump into this last part of Ruth with you this morning. Uh, if you are new here, I'd love to meet you after the service, so please come up and say hello. Uh, but before we dive into these few verses, let's just go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to bless this time in his words. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you that we know that you are that you are Lord, that you are God, that you are King, and as we sang, that you are good. God, we praise you this morning for your sufficient grace. You give us enough grace for today. You give us what we need for the day. And so, God, we praise you for that. And God, we give you thanks for your saving grace, that through Christ we can be rescued and restored and made right with you. And so I pray this morning, I pray in faith on behalf of this church that you would use This time in your word, as we sit under the preaching of your word together, I pray, God, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would transform us today. That there'd be something new that we would learn, but not just for the sake of head knowledge, but it would be transformational in our life. God, I pray that you'd bring encouragement where there's a need for encouragement. I pray you'd bring conviction in our life where there's a need for repentance. I pray... Holy Spirit, that you would fill me, that you would fill us, that you'd help us to be attentive today, and that Christ would be exalted in our lives, even now as we gather together and as we go out from here to make much of you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. On January the 6th, 1850, a young man was on his way to go gather with the church that he had gathered with somewhat frequently. This young man, he was seeking, searching, trying to kind of figure out life, trying to figure out what it meant to know God, to have a relationship with him. And he had gone to church somewhat often. People had shared the good news of Christ with him, but up until this point, he hadn't yet believed, was still trying to figure things out. 
On this particular Sunday, as he walked to the church that he normally gathered with, it was really snowy outside, almost blizzard-like conditions. And as he made this trek towards this church, he realized, I'm not going to make it there. I need to go somewhere else this morning. And so he turned and went to another local church close by. On that particular Sunday, there were only about 15 people gathered together, and the pastor himself wasn't even able to show up because of the snow. So a man in the congregation, an untrained person who didn't have a lot of education, wasn't eloquent in speech, got up and gave a sermon on the fly. And even in the midst of his sermon, mispronounced words along the way. But he preached the gospel. He preached the good news of Christ out of the book of Isaiah. And he told this small gathering of people that it's by Christ alone that you can be saved. And because of the nature of this small gathering at the end of it, he spoke to the crowd and looked specifically at this young man and said to him, in his eyes, look to Christ and be saved. And it was in that moment, on that particular Sunday, that this young man who'd been seeking and searching came to understand his need for Christ, repented, and believed the gospel. All the fruit that had been sown in his life, came to fruition, and he believed. This young man is Charles Spurgeon, a well-known pastor and preacher from the 19th century who went on to have massive impact in England, preaching the gospel faithfully week in and week out to thousands and thousands and thousands of people who he saw, many of which came to believe the gospel for the first time and see their lives transformed and changed by Christ. But here's the thing. A lot of people know who Charles Spurgeon is. No one knows who that man was that preached the sermon that day. Spurgeon doesn't even mention his name as he recounts the story of his conversion. This man played a seemingly small part doing ordinary faithful things on a particular day, but it had enormous impact. Impact that he probably never really knew about. Today we wrap up our sermon series in the book of Ruth. We've spent the last few weeks walking through this short story in the Old Testament that's tucked in there in these four short chapters. And it's a story that we've seen has had a lot of ups and downs and there's confusing things in it and strange things that happen in it. It's been a story mixed with both grief and joy. And something we've seen all throughout it that we're also going to see again today is that God is at work. Always at work. This has been true in the life of Naomi, it's been true in the life of Ruth, it's been true in the life of Boaz. But while that's true, God's work in their lives goes far beyond them, far beyond what's going on in that moment. These three people have a seemingly ordinary, though strange at times, but seemingly ordinary life, ordinary story, but had enormous implications, enormous impact that even reaches us today in 2019 in Fairfax, Virginia. And so as we conclude the story of Ruth, we're, we're invited in this moment as we wrap this up to kind of take a look behind the scenes. A look behind the scenes and see the big picture of what God has done. And because of that, we also have an invitation from God this morning to do something, and it's to have hope. To have hope and believe that God will continue to do a work in us and through us, both as individuals and as a church. And so I hope as we dive into God's word this morning that he would encourage our hearts towards that end. So let's open up to Ruth chapter 4 this morning for one last time as we wrap up our series in this book. Last week we saw kind of the beginning of the end of the story. 
This story has been unfolding. We see all these things taking place. And we see that Boaz righteously pursued marriage to Ruth. And he did so through the law of redemption motivated by the love of redemption. And after all that Ruth's been through, if we go back to chapter 1 and we see all that she's been through, she got married but experienced infertility at least for a decade. Then her husband dies and she decides to go with her mother-in-law and leave everything that she's ever known. She's experienced loss and tragedy and confusion after all that she's gone through, after all that Naomi's been through, losing her whole family, her husband and her two sons. We see redemption and restoration come about. They get married. They have a child. And this isn't just some inconsequential reality for their lives. It's an amazing truth. So many prayers and hopes have come to fruition, have been answered in this moment. Naomi prayed in chapter 1 verse 9, she prayed for rest and kindness to be shown to Ruth. And it has happened. Boaz prayed that God would bless and reward Ruth for her love and her kindness that she had shown to her mother-in-law. He did that in chapter 2 verse 12 and God has done that. Naomi prayed that Boaz would be blessed for how he treated Ruth in chapter 2, verse 20. And God has done that. He's blessed him. God has been at work. He's been at work all throughout this story to bring about his plans, to bring about his purposes. And the women of the town of Bethlehem clearly see that and they declare that to be so in their blessing in verses 14 and 15. Listen again to what they say. They say to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day, Without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter in law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. See, the focus is back on Naomi, but not just on her, it's on how God has been at work in her life all along the way. The women are reminding Naomi through this blessing don't forget what God has done in the midst of your life. The women recognize this. They give praise to God for this amazing work of redemption, this amazing work of restoration, this amazing display of love. See, without Ruth, who knows where Naomi would would have ended up, what would have happened in her life. But because of Ruth's love for her, she's sitting here with her grandson on her lap. Look at verse 16. It says that Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap, and he became She became his nurse. And this is another great display of loving kindness from Ruth to Naomi. Naomi essentially gets to to become the child's nurse. It's like she's another mother to this child. She gets to play an integral part in taking care of this child. This is a life-giving moment for a woman who's lost so much. It it gives her a renewed sense of, of purpose, a renewed sense of vocation for her life, what she's going to do for the rest of her life. You can see how the blessing of these women is coming true. This is a restore of life, a nourisher of her old age. She has something that she gets to do. She once was a woman who had had no food and no future. Now she has both. She has both because Ruth loved her. She has both because God was at work in her life. But who is this child? Up to this point in the story, we don't know his name, but that changes at the beginning of verse 17. It says, And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. What an interesting fact. 
that Ruth doesn't name her son. Boaz doesn't name his son. That would have been the normal custom. It's the neighborhood women who name this child. I mean, can you imagine that today? Like, what if you go to a baby shower and you do all the normal things at a baby shower? You do the, the toilet paper thing, like trying to guess how big around the mom-to-be's belly is. You, you do the guess who's who in the baby pictures, and you play baby bingo, and you do all that stuff. And oh, by the way, we're going to give your child their name at the end of the shower. Like, that would be just as weird today as it was then. It's unique in this moment for the women of the neighborhood to name this child. But I think there's a reason for it. It tips us off to something. There's more going on in this story than we see at face value. And the women seem to get a sense of that. Just like the elders in their blessing in verses 11 and 12, they see something more significant going on in this story. They name him Obed, and they declare, a son has been born to Naomi, not to Ruth. It's her son, but he's playing a more significant role than just ending Ruth's barrenness. See, this story started with Naomi, and now it comes back to her. It's a reversal of the introduction. At the very beginning of this book, we saw Naomi lost her sons, and here she has a new son, a grandson, who she gets to care for and be a part of his life as much as he will be a part of her life. What a picture of loving kindness from God that's been a long journey for her. See, the blessing of the elders and the blessing of the women, you have big expectations for what God is going to do. They see something more in this moment than just the redemption of Ruth, than just the restoration of Naomi. And it's why this story ends with a family tree. See, the author doesn't end here and just say, and they lived happily ever after. No, he ends by suddenly fast-forwarding in time. He says, this little baby Obed, let's fast-forward in his life. Do you know what happens in his life? He becomes the father of Jesse, who is the father of David. The original audience would have been blown away by this. They know who David is. They know exactly who he is, that he is the greatest king in their history. And so they see this story here. They see this unfold and blown away by this truth. So what's the author doing here? In this moment, as he wraps up this story, he's showing you something. He's showing you that God is at work, always at work to bring about his plans, to bring about his purposes for his people, and he's doing it through seemingly ordinary lives of ordinary people. That's part of the reason he gives a more detailed genealogy. He's just stated that Obed Obed is the father of Jesse, the father of David. But then he says again, and he kind of teases that out more, goes back further generations here. He says, now these are the generations of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron the father of Ram. Ram the father of Aminadab. Aminadab the father of Nashon. Nashon the father of Salmon. Salmon the father of Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. He's recounting all of these generations here. But listen, this isn't just for the sake of kind of boring historical information, it sets the whole story of Ruth in a different light. Saying this isn't just about their story, it's about something much bigger than that. He's saying, do you see it? Do you see why the story of Ruth matters? The king comes through this story. The king comes through this story. But he comes in more ways than one. See, this isn't the only place that this genealogy is listed. Flip with me to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. 
And so you can flip there. If you need to use your table of contents, feel free to do so. In Matthew chapter 1, look at verses 2 through 6 and listen to what Matthew writes here. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of who? Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by who? By Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. Jump down to verse 12. Then after the deportation to Babylon, when God's people had been exiled to Babylon, he says this, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. See, this isn't just the genealogy of one of the greatest kings in the history of God's people. It's the genealogy of the king of kings. And just like Obed was born in Bethlehem and his parents didn't get to name him, Mary and Joseph didn't get to pick the name out for their son who also was born in Bethlehem. Verse 21 of Matthew, an angel comes to Joseph and says to him, she, meaning Mary, will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. You don't get to decide who he is and what his name will be. His name will be Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. And Jesus did just that. He's the very Son of God who existed for all eternity. He is the one who in love came to dwell among us, with us, and as one of us, taking on the form of a servant, taking on and being born in the likeness of men. He created the world. He holds everything together. He's the King of kings, high and lifted up, yet he isn't distant and disconnected. He enters into the brokenness of this world, This world that's been fractured by sin. He lived among all who had rebelled against God and his creation, and he did so in perfection. Jesus has a human nature like ours, yet he doesn't sin like we do. He walked among those who were broken. He touched the sick and the dying and the hurting. He spoke good news of the coming kingdom of God and called all people to repent and to turn away from the rebellion and to follow the king and enter into his kingdom. The kingdom of God that's inverted, that's flipped upside down, where the king doesn't remain above his people to be served by his people, becomes a servant of all, of all his people. By willingly and joyfully going to die an atrocious death on a Roman cross for the atrocity of our sin taking our place, bearing our deserved punishment. He died so that you might live. He accomplished the greatest redemption and rescue that all of us need. Jesus made a way to be saved from ourselves and our sin. He was crucified for sinners like you and me. But he didn't stay dead. 
He rose again from the grave, confirming and declaring that he is exactly who he says he is and accomplished exactly what he said he came to accomplish. He is the glorious king of all creation. And it's in him and him alone that we have the ability to have life now and forever. Listen, the genealogy of Ruth that's reiterated in Matthew shows us that Jesus is the ultimate redeemer. He's the ultimate redeemer that Ruth needed. He's the ultimate redeemer that Naomi needed. He's the ultimate redeemer that you need. Do you know him? Have you placed your faith in him? Have you trusted in Christ for who he is and what he's done? And if you have done that, if you look back in your past and say, yes, I've trusted in Christ, let me ask you, are you trusting in him right now? Are you believing in him now? Do you have faith in Christ now? He is the greatest treasure. He is the ultimate redeemer. Are you resting in who Christ is? Do you see the beauty of what God has done in writing this story? But I don't want us to miss something else critical about this genealogy. But I hope it's an encouragement to us as well. See, Jesus is born into the world, not protected from sinners. Jesus is born into the world from a long line of them. His genealogy, we get a glimpse of in Ruth, is, is marked by stories of redemption. It's marked by unexpected and undeserved grace. Even Boaz's story screams this. Do you realize in Matthew, Matthew calls out a couple of names here for a reason. He says Boaz, whose mom was Rahab. Rahab, who was a prostitute, who was not of the people of Israel, God rescued and saved. And that's who Boaz comes through. We see this even in the rescuing and saving of Ruth herself. There's already a hint of the extent of God's plan of redemption. That he will save people from every tribe, every language, and every nation. Listen, it doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. It doesn't matter how messy your past was or your present is. Jesus saves to the uttermost. There's no one that's too far gone, no one who's wandered too far away to experience this love, this grace, this new life. Come to him. Whether it's for the first time or the thousandth time in your life, there's always an ability to come to Christ. But for our church, I want us to think about this. Is our church, the community of this people, is it a place and a people that anyone can come into? And experience the radical love and the rescuing grace of Christ. People that society and culture has thrown off. People who the world looks at and said, you've done awful things. Would, would they feel welcomed here? Would we welcome the truly messy people of this world into our lives? And that's not something for me to figure out as one of the pastors of this church. That's something for you to figure out. This is your church. This is what Ruth did for Naomi. It's what Boaz did for Ruth. It's what Jesus did for us. What if, what if we were known as the church where all the sinners went? Man, I think that'd be great because I think Jesus would be there in the midst of that. Do we have that kind of willingness to welcome in those who Jesus welcomes in, who are part of his family line? Do you remember how the book of Judges ends and the story of Ruth began? In Judges chapter 21, verse 25, the very last verse of the book of Judges, the 
verse that comes right before Ruth chapter 1, verse 1, says this, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And Ruth begins with Elimelech, whose name means God is king. Then he rejects God as king, and he tries to take control of his own life, and it doesn't end well. All of us are tempted to be like that. All of us are tempted to throw off the authority of God in our lives and to take control for ourselves. But how does Ruth end? It ends with a king, David, who points to the king of kings in Jesus. It reminds us that God is indeed king, and he sits on the throne. It all came about because Ruth turned to the one true God in the midst of the dark night of her soul. And she experienced the loving kindness of God and then poured out and showed loving kindness to her mother-in-law who was grieving and broken. But it wasn't just about Ruth. It wasn't just about Naomi. God was at work, always at work. If there's no Ruth, there's no David. If there's no Ruth, there's no Savior. This little story has huge implications. Huge implications. God brought about his own goals that were so much bigger than any of the characters involved in this story could have possibly imagined or realized. So as we close out our time in Ruth, there's something for us to learn in this for ourselves, both as individuals and as a church, as we seek to be faithful. Ruth, Naomi, Boaz, they were ordinary people. But God used the faithfulness of these ordinary people to bring about extraordinary things. God worked among human actions that seemed small and local, unique to this set of people. He did those things that have massive impact on a cosmic level. They played a small part in a big story. The one story that the whole Bible is telling That though we have all rebelled and walked away from God, enslaving ourselves to sin, God is a redeeming God, and he has pursued a lost people. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, and his story is weaved through this story of Ruth. See, the story of Ruth helps us remember that God is always doing thousands of things that we don't always get to see played out in our own lives just like that man who stood in a pulpit on a snowy day and preached the gospel. See, Naomi went through hardship by way of disobedience, and God used it. He used it to save a woman who would be one of the mothers of Jesus. It's amazing. Through Ruth's redemption comes the Redeemer. But this isn't something that Ruth or Naomi would have known about. We don't know for sure, but it's likely that Ruth didn't even realize and know in her lifetime that David would become king. Definitely not Naomi. Brothers and sisters, we have to see that God is at work, always at work. And in moments of faith in our life, we can look at that and be like, yes, I totally believe that. Man, God can do amazing things. What's he going to do amazing through me? What's he going to do amazing through this church? Man, I'm excited about that. I have faith for that. But I think where we struggle is believing that to be true in the mundane, ordinary parts of our life. One of my favorite artists, a guy named Propaganda, he does spoken word and rap, and he has a line in the song, and he says this, it's boring when life is more like the book of Ruth than Exodus. Right? We think about Exodus, we're like, yeah, I want to see that kind of stuff happen. 
like in my life. Like I want to see the Red Sea parted. I want to see God show up in huge ways where it's clear and you see him speaking and doing awesome things and there's burning bushes that aren't consumed and you hear the voice of the Lord. Man, that's what I want my life to look like. But Ruth, that just, that just seems kind of boring. And we can believe God is at work, but we want to see him show up and move and act in big ways. And so when he doesn't, or we don't actually notice it, we can start to think we're missing something or missing out on something. I think all of us can be tempted in the midst of the day-to-day of our life to want things to happen in big ways, to want things to happen quickly, and to want things to happen in a noticeable way. Like, the, does people know how big of a deal I am? They see what God's doing in my life? Are they giving, sure, let's give glory to God, but do they see how big and great this is? They want things to happen in a microwave minute. We live in such a fast-paced culture that when things happen slowly over long periods of time, we get jaded and discouraged and down. But what we have to see in the story of Ruth is that God most often works through the ordinary to do the extraordinary. And I need to be reminded of this. It's easy for me to get discouraged. It's easy for me to get down. Even this past week was feeling discouragement because things aren't going the way that I want them to go. They're not happening in the time frame I would like them to happen in, in our church or in my life. And so it's easy for me to think, well, God, you don't even care. Why aren't you showing up? Why aren't you doing these things in the way that I want you to do them? Maybe you can relate to that in your own life. Is there something in your life right now that's disappointing to you? Your expectations aren't being met in the way that you'd hope? Maybe things in your life right now just aren't exciting. Maybe it's with your church. You're looking around, oh man, I wish my church did this, our church did that. Maybe it's within your working environment that your job isn't going the way that you'd hope or you're not feeling excitement when you go to work every day or maybe it's in relationships or with your family. We can be tempted in those moments to cut and run. Think, well, maybe if I just change everything up, something, I'll find someone or something better to pursue. But I know for me, it's in those moments of discouragement that what I've most often forgotten is the big picture. What I've most often forgotten is that God is at work, always at work. And that he uses simple things, faithful actions, committed love to do great works of redemption. Brothers and sisters, we have to see and believe that God is writing a masterful story. He's the greatest storyteller. He's the creator of everything. And each of us, both on the individual level and as a church, have a part to play. But here's something really important for us to understand. You matter to God, but you aren't the point. You matter to God, but you aren't the point. He was working in and through Ruth to exalt his name, not hers. This wasn't about Ruth's fame or glory. It's about God's fame and glory. Did you guys notice as we wrap up this story that Ruth fades into the background? In her own story, she fades into the background because the king emerges and comes forth to the forefront And that's the way it should be in our own lives. Most of you will not be remembered a few generations from now. And almost none of us, I would guess, are ever going to be written about in a book. You know what? That's okay. And that's the normal part of life. But that doesn't mean that God isn't still at work in and through you. It doesn't mean that he's not always at work in you so that he might work through you. 
So right now in your life, are you living for your fame and glory or God's? Whether it's in your workplace or your community or through the ministry of a church, whose glory are you living for? I need to ask myself that question often and repent often. Recognizing that I'm back and forth between wanting to glorify God and wanting to glorify myself. And so I need to pray and ask God regularly that I would have a John 3.30 posture that he must increase, but I must decrease. Now that doesn't mean that what you do and how you live doesn't matter. What it means is embracing the reality that apart from Christ, you can do nothing. Recognizing that yes, you are inadequate. You don't have what it takes on your own to do anything to give glory and honor to Christ, but he gives you that. He supplies everything you need to work through the ordinary parts of your life to make much of him. It gives us the ability to boast in him and not ourselves. See, just like Ruth, you have a story, but it's a story that's a vignette, a small part of a larger, more complex, multi-layered, multi-textured story. A story that you aren't the central character in, but you do have a part to play. Listen, if you are in Christ, you have been rescued out of darkness. If you are in Christ, you've been rescued out of your sin, rescued from your selfishness, your pride, sexual immorality, addiction, lying, anger, whatever it happens to be. If you are in Christ, that's true for you. So what that means is you have redemption to testify to. You have evidences of grace to celebrate in your life. You have the ability to share the good news of what Christ has done and is doing with others to testify to what God has done in your life and what he's continuing to do in your life. Because for some of you, you're still in the process of being rescued and restored out of those things. Listen, someone can reject your God, but they can't discount the story of his grace in your life. His transforming, resurrecting grace. If you're in Christ, God has rescued you. Maybe he did it through some crazy thing in your life. My guess is for a lot of us, it's been through something ordinary. The faithfulness of your parents shepherding you towards Jesus. The friend on your football team who had boldness to tell you about their Savior. A neighbor who loved you and cared for you and welcomed you into their community. We're gathering with the church for maybe weeks, months, or years, listening to the Word of God preached and prayed and sung over you that brought you to understand your need for Jesus. None of that, never can we hear that, think this, none of that is boring. None of that is inconsequential. It's amazing grace that God has rescued you at all. And now you have the opportunity, you have the privilege to give thanks, to testify to the fact that like we see in Ruth, God indeed sees and he redeems. He redeems that which is lost and broken to recreate something brand new for his glory and our eternal good. Listen, all of us have the opportunity, like Ruth, like Boaz, to be ordinary people doing ordinary things with gospel intentionality. To go about your life. If you're a mom that stays home with your kids or you're in the home and out of the home and you're taking care of your kids to think, man, that's an ordinary thing. I do the same things over and over again. There's opportunity there to shepherd your kids towards Christ. That's not inconsequential. You go to work every day thinking, man, I'm just plugging numbers into a spreadsheet. I'm doing more research. I'm preparing another presentation, another project, meeting another deadline. What's the point of that? 
Man, God wants you to do those ordinary things as an ordinary person with gospel intentionality. That's a cover for you. There's people all around you that need to know of your Savior. What if we saw every opportunity within our lives as business, whatever business we're in as mission, business as mission to engage with our coworkers and our clients to show and share the love of Christ with them? If you're a student, God has placed you in the school that you're in for a particular reason, not just to get an education, but to make much of Christ. Your locker is in a particular place for a particular reason. You're in the dorm you live in for a particular reason. All of us live in particular apartment buildings or houses or townhouses or wherever because God has placed you there to be an ordinary person, doing ordinary things, but with gospel intentionality. Man, what an amazing reality that he allows us to be a part of this big story that he's telling and working in. So are you sitting on the sidelines? Are you waiting for something big to happen, a big opportunity? Man, God, I'll be all in when you give me something that's going to be big. Everybody's going to get excited about global mission, getting on a plane and going overseas. Yes, we're about that, but are you missing the everyday, ordinary opportunities he's placed right in front of you? Are you downplaying what God can do, what he wants to do through your ordinary faithfulness? In the midst of unfinished stories, like Ruth has, like Naomi has, you might never fully know what God is up to. The explanation for what happens in your life may lie beyond your life. And that's okay. It may be hidden from you here and now, but that doesn't mean that God isn't in control. It just reminds you that you aren't. This isn't your story alone. It's your story within the larger story of what God has done. I think when we get to glory, when we stand face to face with our Savior, we'll be blown away at all that God did that we never knew about. We're all living unfinished stories within the larger story of redemption that while it isn't over, we know how it ends. Revelation chapter 7 paints this picture of myriads and myriads of people standing before the throne of God, giving praise and worship to Him for salvation and its people from every tribe, every language, every nation. We see that start to unfold in the story of Ruth. We go to Revelation chapter 21 and 22 and we see that Christ comes and says, Behold, I make all things new. He wipes away every tear from our eyes. There's no more death, no more darkness, no more sin, no more suffering anymore. The river of life flows through the middle of the city and there's no need for light anymore. There's no need to be illuminated by anything. There's no shadows, there's no flashlights, there's no lights on your phone, no candles, nothing because the glory of Christ radiates everywhere and that we are with our Savior forever and ever and ever and ever being welcomed into the family of God to be with Him, our Redeemer. So when everything seems crazy in your life, when everything seems chaotic in your life, when things seem just confusing in your life, I want to encourage you to remember a Redeemer who was born in Bethlehem into the crazy, into the chaotic, into the confusing. Remember that light has come into the world never to be put out again. May the simple story of Ruth help you to see the big picture story of our God and encourage you in the midst of the day-to-day of your life to keep fighting for joy, to keep clinging to Christ and making much of him, to keep trusting that our God sees and redeems, to keep believing that he is at work, always at work, and he does all things well. We take communion every week as a church as a response to God's lavish grace towards us in Christ. 
And this meal gives us an opportunity to repent, to turn away from when we've been chasing after something else or someone else instead of Christ. It gives us an opportunity to believe again, to place our faith, our hope in Jesus, to come to him. It gives us an opportunity to worship, to give praise and thanks for what Christ has accomplished for us. Jesus gave us this meal as a picture of what he did for us. We eat the bread, a picture of Jesus' body broken for us. We drink the cup, a picture of Christ's blood shed for us. It's a meal that reminds us every week that we need rescue. And it's a meal that reminds us every week that we've been given a rescuer. It's a meal that calls us again to turn away from sin and turn to him. It's a meal that invites us to rest in the big picture story of what God is doing. And so as you come forward this morning, come forward to rejoice, come forward to rest in grace that has brought you this far, in grace that will see you all the way home. That if you're not yet a follower of Christ, I'm so grateful that God has brought you to be here this morning, that as you're thinking about and wrestling with who God is and what it means to know him, I hope you've heard and seen the beauty of who Christ is this morning. But we would just ask you not to come forward to take communion, but instead to think about what's been communicated, to think I need Jesus, and we want you to take Christ today. We want you to turn away from chasing after other things and turn to Jesus and Him alone. So if you haven't yet done that, just hang in your seat. Tell God that you want that relationship with Him if that's where you're at. And if you have questions about what it means to know Christ, to follow Him, please come talk to me or anybody else that's a part of this church. We'd love to talk with you and journey with you in that. For those of you that will come forward, you can come to the tables at the front or the back tear off a piece of bread, take a cup to drink, and what Jesus, your Redeemer, has done for you will be spoken over you this morning. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you for allowing us this time and the story of Ruth over this last month or so. We thank you, God, for allowing us the chance to see the big picture of your providence in the story of Ruth. God, I pray that you would help us to recognize the ordinariness of this story. Help us to see that these ordinary people, that through them the Savior has come. God, we give you praise and thanks for that. But we pray, God, that you'd help us to be okay with being ordinary people. Help us to be okay with playing the background. That Christ may be exalted through us. That we wouldn't seek to make much of ourselves, but make much of you. So God, we thank you for your grace. I pray that you'd help us to remember the good news of redemption that has come through Christ when everything else around us seems shaky, that we know that we have a solid rock in which to stand, the anchor of our soul in Christ who has come and will come again. We praise you today for our Redeemer and our Restorer, and we pray all this in his name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this sermon from Sojourn Fairfax. If you have any questions, please feel free to email us at info at sojournfairfax.com. Go in peace.